we're in the very end of chapter 13 in our study of the book of Genesis. We're looking at the patriarchs, chapter 12 through 50. We're not dealing with the first 10 chapters, uh, first 11 chapters. But um, reminder here the context, because I want to focus on uh, specifically verse 14 and following, and then uh, transition into chapter 14. So in chapter 13, verse 14, a reminder of what has happened, uh, Abram and his wife Sarai and his clan, and Lot is a part of his clan. They're back in the land, back in the promised land, uh, and they're finding that the enormous amount of their flocks, because as we, we talked last week, Abram leaves Egypt a wealthy man. Pharaoh blesses him with, with flocks and herds and animals, and the 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 enormity of their flocks is such that those that Lot owns and those that Abram owns, they make the decision to split. And Abram says, "Lot, you choose. You want to go on the east side of the Jordan River, or you want to go to the west, or whatever. Well, you choose, and I'll choose the rest." And as you know from last week, Lot chose. To the east of the Jordan River, we looked at the map and pointed it out a little bit. He is going to be in the area, and this will be important for chapter 19, where Sodom and Gomorrah are. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So then Abram now is, is on the, his land is on the west side of the Jordan River. And he has, as it says in verse 12, he settles in the land of Canaan. Then verse 14. The Lord, and please note in your translations, it should have the Lord in uppercase letters, capital letters. That's Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. What is God doing here? He's reaffirming part of the covenant of land. It's in chapter 12, verse 7 is the first mention of that. But God is reaffirming this. But what's different here is Abram, excuse me, on the west side of the Jordan River, Abram was able to look north, look east, look south, look west, and God says to him, all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring for a hundred years. It doesn't say that, does it? says forever. Now that is a reminder of something. The Abrahamic covenant, those three promises God makes to Abram, are unconditional promises. They're unilateral promises. God is the one who's making them, not conditional on anything. And this is a covenant that God will fulfill. And so this is a covenant promise. Please note that, not only to Abram, but to his descendants, to his offspring. Another way of saying that to the Jewish people. I will make your offspring the dust of the, as a dust of the earth, so that if they can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk through the land and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled in the Oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. We'll say more about that in just a minute. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So what has God done here? After the separation of the flocks, etc., of Abram and Lot. Lot goes to the east side of the Jordan River and settles in Sodom. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. Whereas now Abram is looking at what is really, at that time, would have been known as land of Canaan. 
was inhabited. There's no nation of Canaan. It's all of the Canaanite tribes. All the tribes end in I-T-E-S. The Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and all of those. We'll be seeing more about them in just a little bit. So they own the land now. Well, what has God just said? I'm going to give you all this. And all of your descendants will have it. So I think an important an important point that is relevant for you and me in 2021 is to ask this question. Is that promise still valid today in 2021? Yes. It is. Uh, and Jim's in that class, and so is Fred, that I, I teach in my church at, uh, over the lunch hour on Tuesday. But anyway, we just finished Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel 36 and 37, the, the, the people of Judah, the children of Israel in exile in the Babylonian era, but anyway, God makes this promise again to the exiles. But what is added is, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back to your land. And it, it's it's just an incredible, it's an incredible reaffirmation of the covenant. And that was, you know, that was, uh, that was 400, 586 BC. And you got to get that about 515 BC before they rebuild their temple and everything. And God's still saying the same thing to them. He's still saying the same thing. And so today for you and me, there's an important aspect of the covenant. And that's why I gave you this chart. And again, those guys are online and sent you a copy of this in an email. This chart, we're going to be using this for the next couple of weeks. So if you lose it, you'll owe a thousand dollars to my church. That's a fundraising technique we're using. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But anyway, now, this is what I want you. I want you to get this in your mind. I, I don't mean to talk to you like children, but I want you to really get this deep in your mind and don't ever forget it. The Abrahamic covenant has three promises: a land promise, a seed promise, and a spiritual promise. The land promise we just read about. It's first dated in verse 7 of chapter 12, but that land promise, and I, I'm, I'm giving you another, uh, if you look at those verses, chapter 15, verse 7, and just I could have a dozen verses there, but it's a very specific block of land. It's largely the eastern Mediterranean. That's what it is. Then the second is the seed, and you saw that uh, summarized in verse 16, offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky. Okay, so descendant. He's gonna, he is the first of an enormous number of people. Ethnically, they're called the Jews. And then thirdly is the spiritual blessing. And it's, it's a blessing, Abram, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's a spiritual blessing. And when, when, when Abram hears that, it, it'd be interesting. Did he really understand what God's saying to him? I don't think he did necessarily. But he then, he, God then adds, and Abram, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Your descendants. And so that becomes an important, an important item to watch through history. Not only biblical history as you study the Old Testament, but even after that, throughout the history, even of of the 20th century, for example. So th there is a framework of a major, major covenant of the Bible. If you don't understand the Abrahamic covenant, you really won't understand the rest of the Old Testament because the Old Testament keeps harking back to this. And 
just a, another reminder of how important this is. How many times in the Old Testament does God identify himself this way? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does he keep referring to himself in that way? I'm the God of the covenant. I made promise, because Abraham gives birth, is Sarah, his wife gives birth to Isaac, and then Isaac's son is Jacob, the covenant son. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then each one of those tribes, I mean, you just keep going on and on and on until you get to the New Testament. So that's why you can refer correctly, I believe, to the people of Israel as the covenant people of God. And this Abrahamic covenant, which we're going to just keep seeing again and again and again, God just keeps repeating it through the book of Genesis. He's going to repeat it to Isaac several times. He's going to repeat it to Jacob over and over and over again. Because Jacob's kind of a rascal. He isn't really a good guy until God breaks him. But God keeps reminding him, you are the covenant son. And so here it's first stated. And God is now. I mean, we're still early in this relationship between Yahweh and, and Abram. But God keeps reminding him, Abram, I've made promises to you. And Abram, I'm going to keep them. And so we already know, because we talked about that last week, Abram is a man of faith. He trusts God for remarkable things that I would doubt, that I would have had the faith to do some of the things Abram did. Okay, God, I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know where we're going, but I'll leave everything. I'll follow you. you know, well, my wife often says there's no way I would have been a pioneer crossing the Appalachian Mountains. <laughs> if you wanted to go west, you'd have gone west alone. <laughs> so I don't think if I were Abraham and, and God called me, I said, Peggy would have said, honey, I'm not going with you. <laughs> Which, of course, I don't know why I'm talking. Or you have little face. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> all right. Now, I want to say a word about Hebron or Hebron. It's pronounced both ways. Um, if you have your map or you want to use your map or you're interested in that, the one I gave you on page, I think it's your page 18. Uh, again, if you just, if, if you're interested in this, Hebron or Hebron, you can see it on, as you go, let follow that arrow that's going down. It's pretty far south along that arrow. It's a little bit south of Jerusalem on this map. It's actually a little farther than that. But Hebron is going to be, Hebron and Beersheba are going to be the two cities associated with Abraham. But, but Hebron is going to become extremely important because he's going to buy a plot of land there. And that's where his tomb will be. Now, I've been there a number of times in my life, but Hebron, there's this massive church now, massive church that they built over the tombs of Abraham, of Sarah, of Jacob, Joseph, and so on. I'm saying all that because that has become a key, key city in the Middle East of the 21st century. Because the Muslim faith, and the majority of people that live in Hebron today are Muslims. The Jews are not the majority in Hebron. As a matter of fact, I stopped taking my tour when I would do my tours to see that, that great church because the last time we were there, the Palestinian kids were throwing stones at our boss. Mm. And I, I said to Ronnie, my, my friend and my guide, uh, he said, this is, this is one of the difficult things about coming here. My, my, you know, my mind is thinking, Grace University's president, five, five people in his bus were hurt by, by rocks and hospitalized. All those things. So, 
Uh, plus, I mean, seriously, the safety of people. So we decided not to go anymore to have It's very volatile. The last time I was there, we literally rushed out of the bus, quick saw the church, and rushed back to the bus. It's a very volatile city. It's, it's, it's all, if you ever read the news or watch the news, often a lot of riots and a lot of demonstrations. Because the Jews that are there are, it's a very difficult place for them to be because the vast majority of the people who live there are, are, are Arabs. So, keep your, just keep your eye on Hebron. We're going to be talking about that many, many times as we study the patriarchs. That's where the graves of the patriarchs are. Sorry, is that still currently in modern-day Israel? Yes. No, actually, well, that's really that's a great question because as a part of the Oslo Accords in the early 90s, the Palestinians were given authority, to administrative authority over key cities, Jericho, Bethlehem and Hebron. So it's in Israel, but it's it's like an oasis, like Jericho is in Israel. But it's part of that, it was part of that agreement which gave them administrative authority over kind of a number of people in the key areas. All right, now I wanted to go over the covenant. If keep just keep this sheet because this other sheet, I'm going to talk about this a little later on. That's the flip side of the one. That you're looking at because these are all the covenants of the Bible on one sheet. But just keep that. And if you lose it, you owe a thousand bucks to my church. I'm just kidding. But try not to lose it. And those of you who have it online, you'll never lose it. All right, chapter 14. Now we'll shift to this. Now there are going to be a lot of odd names here. Okay. What I want to do is I want to give you the big picture and then we're going to read it. This focus, chapter, this chapter 14, focus, is on Lot initially. And whereas Lot, he settled on the east side of the Jordan River. He makes his home in Sodom. Okay? Now, that whole area, the east side of the Jordan River, what is really the Jordan Valley, the Jordan Valley had been conquered and was now serving kings to the east. So it, it was like a subservient province of these kings to the east, okay? And they, they are ruled by these kings of the east for 12 years. And a coalition of these towns, and Sodom is going to be one of them, a coalition of these towns make the decision to rebel against those eastern rulers. Okay, if you don't understand that, you don't understand what's going on here. So the area where Sodom, excuse me, the area where Lot lives in the Sodom area is now being controlled by kings of the east, and they're paying tribute to them. They have, they have to let certain things happen, travel restrictions. They have to pay taxes to them and all that. They did this for 12 years. Now they make the decision, we're going to end this. And so what's going to happen is these kings of the east are going to come into the Jordan Valley and capture a lot of the guys to force them to come back under their authority. And one of the guys they capture is Lot. And that's going to cause Abram to act. So that's setting us up for something extremely important at the end of chapter 14. Let's get the circumstance. You sort of got an idea what I just said, okay? Mm -hmm. In the days of, these are very odd names. I'm just going to go through them quickly, but just get, get the idea. Um, Armaphel, king of Shinar. By the way, Shinar is Babylon. Shinar is a plain. It's a plain in southern Mesopotamia, where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers come together. That's where it is. 
Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketaliomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemavar, king of Zobaim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All of these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. What do we call that today? The Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketaliomer, but in the 13th, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Ketaliomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim of Ashurkat Kanaim, Duzim of Ham, Amim of Shabbat Keradaim, the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Now, all of those names are really familiar. They just roll off your tongue. Like they're difficult names. They turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and the Amorites who were dwelling in Arizon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zobaim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. So what you have now is you have an alliance of four kings that are mentioned in verse 1, and now an alliance of five kings. The four kings of, of, of verse 1 are the ones who conquered the Jordan Valley. The five kings of verse 8, as a coalition of kings that have been subservient, have been serving and paying tribute to these kings, were going to rebel. And they joined in the Valley of Sidim with Ketaliomer, title king of Goim, etc., etc. Now, verse 10. Now, the Valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell with them and the rest of the hill country. The enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and all his possessions and went their way. Now, Moses is telling, Moses wrote this. Moses is telling us something in verse 10. It's important. These bitumen pits. This was a very valuable commodity. It's where a lot of oil comes from. Now, they're not pumping oil and putting it in internal combustion cars, but it was used as a commodity for building. They built their buildings using this because everything in this part of the world is, is, is loose soil. It doesn't pack well. So this is what they used to enhance building projects. That's why they wanted this. So the four kings of the east, Ketaliom is kind of the head guy, and the five kings that are serving this guy, they're rebelling. They lose. They lose to these guys. So they're back under their control. And to drive home how important this role is, they take Lot. Now, it would seem reasonable to assume that they took a lot of the leaders, but the Bible's only interested in one of them. Lot, because Lot is the nephew of Abram. So here's the situation. Lot has now been kidnapped. He's a, he's a, uh, a hostage, you might say, using language you use today. So Abram hears about this. Verse 13, and Abram who had escaped, the, the one who had escaped came and told Abraham, or Abram, the Hebrew. Now, in my Bible, I just underlined that. This is the first time that word is used in the Bible. So that is going to become a label, an ethnic name, an ethnic identity that's associated with Abram. Abram the Hebrew. And 
among the many, many things that his followers will be called Hebrews. They'll be called Jews because they're, we'll talk about that later. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit later, the children of Israel. But here's the first time it's used. And we'll be talking a little more about that. It was living by the Oaks of Mama, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Abba. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had taken captive, he led forth his trained men. Now that's a, I'm reading from the ESV translation. I don't know what all your translations might be. But in verse 14, it's trained men. It's the only time this word is used in the Old Testament. Now, it always causes a little bit of a problem because you try to figure out what does, exactly does that mean. ESV is translating it, train men. So it, it seems to be a term that's focusing, not so much that they went to West Point and graduated you know, as a military officer, but the idea is these are individuals of courage, of faith, and of some fighting expertise. And we learn, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So, the, it's just 318 men. It's, it's interesting how specific the Bible is here. It doesn't say about 320 or about 300. It says 318, very specific. And these are the guys that are going to be the fighters. And Abram will lead them. He's down in Hebron. He's going to go all the way north to Dan. And if you look at the map of page 70, it's way up north. And that's where he's being held captive. And he divided his forces against them that by night. He and his servants had defeated them, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all his possessions and brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women, women and the people. So all of those have been taken by those four eastern kings that alliance that they'd formed have been rescued by, by Abram, his 318 trained men. And listen, when it says, then he brought back all the possessions, he has plundered. He's plundered that alliance. He's taken, you know what spoils are? He's taken spoils from them, plus all of Lot's possessions. So now he's going down there, he's going, he's headed back home. It's going to end up back in Hebron. All right, so the, the Bible tells us nothing about battle, nothing about severity. Not, it, all it says is he rescues Lot. And he's leaving that area with more wealth. And plus what Lot's recovered, all his possessions and so on. All right, you with me? Does that all that make sense? That is all setting us up for the extraordinary event. That's recorded for us in verse 17 and following. What happens in 17 and following is based on the context of what we just looked at. The Bible doesn't say much about it. It gives us a few details, that's it, it's over. This is what's important, because he runs in, he, Abram, runs into Melchizedek. After his return from the defeat of Ketelioma and the kings were with him, I'm in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. That is the King's Valley. Now, again, if, if you're not interested in some of this, that's okay. But if you are following it on your map, the Valley of Sheba is in the area of Jerusalem. It's a, a series of valleys. There. That's where it is. So we're very close to Jerusalem. All right? 
And Melchizedek, the king of Sodom, uh, excuse me, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then, in parenthesis, he was the priest of God Most High. Now, let's stop there for just a minute. As Abram is making his way south to his home, in the valley of Sheba, which is near Jerusalem, he meets two people. First, he meets the king of Sodom, and we'll see more about him in just a minute. And secondly, he meets this strange, unusual man, Melchizedek. And it says of Melchizedek two things. One, he's the king of Salem. Now, Salem is in English. If you read that in Hebrew, it would say king of Shalom. That's what it would be saying. This is early Jerusalem. This is Middle Bronze Age Jerusalem. This is, I mean, it, it's not very large. But the second thing we learn is he was a priest of God Most High, a priest of El Elyon in Hebrew. So two things. Melchizedek is a king, but Melchizedek is also a priest. Priest. The guys, you know what class participation is? <laughs> priest. Oh, mind you, there is an element of that. So, okay. So, I mean, now, the reason this is really important. I'm going to fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus Christ is a priest, but as the book of Hebrews says, he's not a priest after the order of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, here and in Psalm 110. He isn't mentioned anywhere else. The book of Hebrews makes a big deal out of this because Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Jesus Christ is both a king and a priest. And so right now I'm not going to say more about that. But this, this figure, he's, he's curious, he's mysterious, he just shows up. But I want to ask you another question to contemplate. Sometimes when we read chapter 12 and 13 and 14 of, of Genesis, you sort of come away with the impression that the only true believer in God at this time, 4,100 years ago, was Abraham. There was nobody else on earth. That's not true. Here is Melchizedek, who's king of an important city. I mean, you know, important in terms of cities 4,000 years ago, but still an important city. And he's a priest to the Most High God. And that, that Most High God is El Elyon. That's one of the major titles of God in the Bible. So what's, is he, a, is he a worthy, true worshiper of God? Yeah. And he's leading people because he's a priest. That means he's a mediator for lots of other people. And you got to remember one other fact about that question. Job is also a contemporary of Abraham. So at least we know three people. <laughs> and there were, you know, of course, more, many, many more than that. But the Bible's only interesting one thing, is Abraham, because God has chosen him to be that channel of blessing. Okay, now, are you with me so far? 
I'm adding a little bit, but I want you to, we are at a very important part of scripture. This figure of Melchizedek is a critical figure in the Bible. So he brings out to Abram, remember, King of Sodom has come out, now Melchizedek has come out. They're in that valley right outside of Jerusalem. And he brings him bread and wine, which is really interesting. Why is that interesting when you think of bread and wine? Well, you can think of the Passover meal. The you can bread. think of communion. I mean, they, you should be thinking about those two things and, and connecting those two, but it's just fascinating. It's refreshment. I mean, they're coming back from the battle. And so the king of Sodom is bringing out refreshment for him. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram. Melchizedek blesses Abram. Mm -hmm. Not Abram blessing Melchizedek. Melchizedek. It's Melchizedek. Priest of the Most High God, the king of Salem, is blessing Abram. And here's the content of the blessing. Blessed be Abram by God the Most High. In Hebrew, that's El El Yon. E-L. Second, E-L-Y-O-N. El El Yon. It's one of the great titles of God in the Bible. Possessor, ESV has chosen to, tra I, I like that, has chosen to translate that possessor. Some of your translations might have creator, but possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God the most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. So here you have this, this priest, Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, uttering astonishing words. Words of blessing to Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, El Elyon, who is the creator slash possessor of heaven and earth. That is a statement of his sovereignty. That is a statement of his lordship over everything. And it immediately takes you back to Genesis 1. He's the creator of everything. And he's the creator of everything. He's the possessor of everything. He's Lord and sovereign over the world. And this, Abram, this is the one who's blessing. It's an amazing statement. It's an amazing theological statement. It's an amazing theological statement that has fantastic content in it. The most high God bless you, Abraham. The one who's the creator and possessor of everything bless you. And what was Abram's response? Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And remember, as we read earlier in verse 16, Abram kind of plundered these eastern kings who had kidnapped his nephew. Now, he has a lot of wealth, so he gives. Man, this is a form of worship. God is the possessor of everything. I am giving back to God a portion of what he has given me, because he owns everything. I'm giving him back. So this is amazing, fantastic illustration of the faith of man, this man Abram. He just had amazing victory, rescuing his nephew and all that. He has the plunder and spoils from that battle. God, as Melchizedek just said, the possessor of heaven and earth, he owns everything. And Abram is a form of worship. God gave me this. God gave me, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to give it back. And this sets that pattern that will, you will see, uh, shall we use the word enshrined? I will, I guess, enshrined in the law 
where you give a tenth of everything to the Lord in terms of, of, of Israel. And so you have this quite astonishing man, Melchizedek, doing this remarkable blessing and Abram responding with worship. I recognize what God has done for me, and I'm going to give it back to him. And establishing a pattern, which will be throughout the, New Te- uh, throughout the Old Testament, excuse me. All right, before we look at the, what the king of Sodom does, before we get to that, uh, is everybody with me? Do you want to ask any questions about any of this? Uh, yes, I have a, a question about uh, Salem. Is Salem yes. simply referring to geography there? Um, yeah, I, I think I know what your question is. Uh, yes, it's mm-hmm. it's the area of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, yep, so that... So is the the king of peace? Yeah, well, that would be, uh, well, yes, because that's what Salem or Shalom means, mm-hmm. peace. But um, it's also a geographical name, Russ. Correct. I it's, know about the geography. Yeah. I just didn't know whether there was a, another meaning layered um, under that. I've always wanted to ask that question. Uh, I, I'm not sure what you're asking, I'm not sure what your comment meant, but it, well, it some, is a reference to a geographical place 2,500 feet above sea level on that ridge. You have the Mount of Olives, you have, there are three ridges there, and Jerusalem's on one of those level ridges. And that was called Salem very, very early in history. This is the Middle right. Bronze Age. What right. Archaeologists I've, call it. And it's heard, a very ancient city. I've heard this uh, referred to as a Christophany, and I wanted to, I didn't know if I wanted to go how far down that bunny trail I wanted to go. I don't so. want to go down that bunny trail, so be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Russ, it is, there is some debate about that because of how Melchizedek is then described in the book of, of the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it, it is, it's kind of a, a deep weeds type theological mm-hmm. issue. I probably would want to stay away from it if it's all right with you. But my own opinion, because I, I spent a lot of time studying that, because I taught Hebrews for quite a while, I'm not convinced it is a Christophany. I'm really not. Um, he is called a man. He is identified in that way. But it, but it's it's possible. It's possible. He certainly, he certainly is a worshiper of the one true and only God. By the way, he's described here. But there is a myster- there's a mysterious aspect of, of Melchizedek, mm-hmm. because as I said when I when we started this, he's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament here, and then in Psalm 110. He's not mentioned anywhere else, no. and of course he is mentioned in the New Testament and, uh, several times. But there is just a mystery about him because mm-hmm. there's so many we we want to know more about him, but the Bible has chosen not to tell us much about him. So for now, let it go. Would that be Sorry. all right? Oh yeah, that's fine. I, I couldn't let this one go because this no, is one no, of the one of those areas marked in my uh, Bible. Yeah, but I think you, in your major question, you want to think of Salem there as a physical place over which he was ruling. That that is pretty good consensus on that and understanding. Oh, thank you. Now, verse twenty-one. Then, what about this other individual who come out to meet him in the valley of Shavah? the king of Sodom. Now, of course, remember, this would have been one of the kings that was a part of that alliance that rebelled against this. But now he's the king of Sodom. This is where Lot lived. 
So the king of Sodom comes up. The king of Sodom, verse 21, said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up my hand to the Lord, God most high. I want to come back to that in a minute. Possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Azur, Eshkan, Mamre take their share. So the, the king of Sodom is making a proposition to him. He's in effect staying to him in in, in a way. Um, let's kind of let's kind of take a look at all these spoils. Let's take a look at all these people. Let's kind of divide it. Let's 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 share it. And he says, "No, I I'm not going to deal with you. I'm not going to make an agreement with you." In effect, he wants what we might call today. He wants a treaty. He wants an agreement where they share in this stuff. And Sodom says, I, Sodom says, Abram says, I serve Yahweh, the God most high. He's repeating the blessing from Melchizedek. I serve him. I am not interested in, in any way making a treaty or an alliance or an agreement or you can leverage that alliance, or leverage that agreement. I'm the reason Abraham's rich. I'm the reason Abraham has made such successful investments. I couldn't believe it, but I want nothing to do with it. My allegiance and devotion is to Yahweh El Elyon. Use the Hebrew language that he would use there. And no one else. And so you have this contrast. That's what the Bible's setting up here for us. This contract, Abram had been victorious. He leaves northern, northern part of the land with great spoil. He's wealthier. And Melchizedek comes. This enormously important individual and blesses him. The channel of blessing from the Most High God. And in Sodom, the king of Sodom, two kings, two proposals, two relationships. Abram wants nothing to do with the king of Sodom. So, the adventure is over. We're ready to shift into chapter 15. All right? Now, two things happened in chapter 14. First of all, Abraham increases his wealth, and God gave him the victory. Secondly, he received this blessing from Melchizedek. Melchizedek is Hebrew, which means king of righteousness. That's what that word means. And so he, he meets him, he gets his blessing, and he worships God by giving back to God a tenth of what God had given him to that victory. Because worship is not just singing a song on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is acknowledging that God is the sovereign Lord of your life, and everything you do you relate to him. Immediate response of Abraham. That's why I'm amazed at this. The immediate response of Abraham to that blessing from Melchizedek is worship. I fought for this. It's mine. No, it's not his attitude. 
you blessed me, I will give back to you. It's a form of worship. Now, chapter 15 is a reaffirmation of the covenant, but literally, it's the cutting of the covenant. Hebrew is barit. It's barit. It's the cutting of a covenant. That's literally what's going to happen. The reason this chapter is important is because this chapter confirms something. And these are the labels you should use with the Abrahamic covenant. It's unconditional and it's unilateral. That is why what God promises to Abraham, will God keep that promise? Even when the Jewish people don't want anything to do with him, even when the Jewish people fall into idolatry, even when the Jewish people reject his son as Messiah, at least many of them do, is he still going to keep this promise? And that's a, that's a reigning issue throughout the scriptures. Because this covenant, and this is what chapter 15, I don't think we're going to get all this done today, but what chapter 15 does is it establishes the unconditional, unilateral nature of this covenant. But I want you to, I want to get to verse 6 here, which I think we can do. After these things, verse 1 says, what things? The things of chapter 14. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, when God, it's a wonderful Hebrew word there. A shield. Now, you know what a shield is in battle or whatever. That's a metaphor. Abram, I'm your protector. You are secure and safe with me. Your reward shall be very great. All right, now when God says that, your reward shall be very great, Abram isn't thinking about a check he's going to get in the mail or you know uh, uh, another herd of animals or something like that. He's Correctly, he's thinking the blessing. You promised me children. And at this point, Abram still doesn't have a son. His wife is barren. She's never had children. But he still believes God. He still believes God. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? I'm childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer of Damascus is the head of his entire, of his entire household. He manages his portfolio. He invests it all through the wealth management from the heart. I'm making all that up. But that's who he is. He's the most trusted man in Abram's household. Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. Remember, my household will be my heir. When I die, Eliezer inherits everything. Verse 4. The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. Literally in Hebrew, the one that comes out of your loins will be your heir. But we clean that up and say, your son will be your heir. And he brought him outside. He would be God, brought him outside, Abram, said, look toward heaven, the number of stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. 
chapter 13 at the end, as numerous as the dust, that's your offspring. Now, as numerous as the scars. Can you count those, Abel? One, two, three, four. You know, you can count all night. You never get them all done. And particularly when you're in the Middle East like this, and I know it's artificial light, it is amazing the stars you see. And it's dark. I mean, really incredible. Verse 6 is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Now, he, Abram, believed Yahweh, and it was counted to him as righteousness. If you would ask the question the way we ask questions as evangelical Christians, when was Abram saved? This is the verse you would use. Chapter 15, verse 6. Because what does it say? He believed God. And God's response was, he declared him righteous. What's the word Paul uses for this? Justification. Justification. If you go and look at the book of Romans, and you study chapter 4, where Paul is he's defending justification by faith, it's a very important part of his argument in Romans. In chapter 4, he says, okay, I want to go way back now. I want to go back to the beginning of the Jewish people. How was Abraham justified, Paul asked? What's his answer? By faith. And he quotes this verse. In chapter 4 of Romans, he quotes Genesis 15, 6, four times. That's how important this verse is. And so what you have introduced here, now, now those have been in the class for a while, that justification is not a new word to you. Right? We've used that a lot. But this is, the ter- this is the term that's used here. Counted to him as righteousness. It's a, it's a, like a merchant's term, a... Uh, it's like an Excel spreadsheet. You put it all out, and what's the bottom line? It's counted him as righteousness. And so God has, God has declared him. He's imputed his righteousness to Abraham's account. In God's eyes, Abraham is righteous. Why? Because he earned it? He merited it? No. Nope. Because he believed what God was telling him. And so this is just an extraordinary verse of, of immense importance in understanding Abram was chosen by God. He responded to God in faith. And every time God told him the promise, he believed him. And now in God's eyes, he's righteous. Again, the language we would use. When was Abram saved? Here's the verse he would use. Verse 7. And he, God, said to him, Abram, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. Okay, he's repeating. This is the third time God has said this to him. Said it in chapter 12, said it in chapter 13. Now he says it again. But he, Abram, said, verse 8, O Lord God, Adonai Elohim, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, the he is God, said to him, Abram, bring a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. I'm nearing the end of our, our class. What is going on here? Because I, I'm not going to get all this done, but I want to lay this out now. In the ancient world, and it was in, in the Mesopotamian Valley, it was down in Egypt, in, in the ancient world, if Joel and I made an agreement, I mean a major, maybe it was a property agreement, maybe it was a, we're involved in a, in a trading uh, arrangement where our camels are going over and over, whatever. We have made an agreement. How do we seal that agreement? Well, there weren't any lawyers at that time. May be a good idea, but there weren't any lawyers at that time. There, were, there wasn't any civil government authority at that time. So what would you do to seal this covenant? You would take animals from your herd and you would cut them in half. And then Joel and I, after they're cut in half, Joel and I would hand in hand walk between these animals that have been killed and cut in half. And what are we saying? If I break this agreement, may that happen to me. So it's, it's sort of a symbolism. It's kind of absurd and kind of ridiculous the way you and I think in the 21st century. But like I said, they couldn't go and have an agreement notarized. And, you know, formally by every legal, no, that, that didn't exist. So this was, this was, this is what God has instructed Abram to do. Take these animals, cut them in half. And now Abram has fallen into a deep sleep. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not yours, your servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterwards shall come out with great possessions. You yourself shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried. You shall come back in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a spark, smoking fire pot, and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord, the Greek, the Hebrew is, on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. To your offspring, I'll give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, that smoking fire pot and flaming torch is symbolic of God's presence. And what, he, what has happened? Did Abram and God walk between those animals together? No. God did. So following that symbolism, on whom is this covenant promise rest? God. It's an unconditional covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. And God, again, in, in the language of verse 18, God repeats the promise. But when you look at, on that day, verse 18, the Lord made us literally in Hebrew, cut a covenant, berit, cut a covenant. But did you notice something? In verse 13, 14, and 15, Abram, before I give you the land, your people are going to have to go to Egypt. And how long are they going to be in Egypt? 400 years. Because the iniquity of the Amorites 
is not yet complete. The Amorites is a collective term used for all the Canaanite tribes. So what's God saying? You will possess the land, but your descendants have to be in Egypt first. And you know from studying the early chapters of the book of Exodus, the clan of Jacob is brought down to Goshen, 70 people. 400 years later, how many Jews are there? Close to 2 million, give or take a few hundred thousand. Because in that 400-year period, you go from a clan to a nation. And by that time, the Canaanite immorality and, and, and debauchery has reached its point. And God is going to use the children of Israel to judge the Canaanites. And as they judge the Canaanites, they will get their land. This is another example of the sovereignty of God in history. He's working his plan. And everything that's a part of the plan is going to be accomplished. And I want you to notice the third thing. You're going to get the land, but you're going to have to spend 400 years in Egypt. But Abram, you're never going to see any of this. You're going to die. And then Abram said, that's it. I no longer believe. And he loses his salvation. No, that's not. He believed God. That's the amazing thing about Abraham. He keeps hearing these promises from God over and over again, but he never sees God fulfilled. But he still believed. So, I mean, I'm so thankful we could get this done this morning because this chapter 15, I, I want to, I'm out of time, but I want to say a little more about the boundaries that are mentioned there in verse 18. I'll start there next week, but because that's kind of important too. But this is just, you see, this circle, this, this circle that God is constructing for Abraham, that circle of blessing, all that's involved in it. And Abraham's response continues to be, okay, I believe. I believe what you're saying. I trust what you're saying. My faith is sound and secure. And that's why Abraham is such a fantastic illustration of faith. All right, is everybody with me? Mm -hmm. yeah. So your thought paper is 500 words or less. Illustrate the faithfulness of God to Abraham in chapters 13, 14, and 15. Wouldn't that be a great little thought paper? Huh? All right, I'm going to pray, and i got to get going here. Father, thank you for a good study. These are extremely important chapters in the book of Genesis. They're really important chapters in our faith, because here's Abraham, a tremendous model of faith. You are telling him unimaginable things, things that have been incredibly difficult for him to comprehend, but he keeps responding, I believe you, God. I believe you. And as verse 16 of chapter 15 told us, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. He was declared righteous at that moment. And that is always the pattern that you follow throughout all of human history. You justify people based on their faith in you. But he is a model of faith. Extraordinary promises, he believed them. And God, you fulfill every one of those promises. And that's important for us in 2021. You're a God. When you make a promise, we can bank on it. You are going to keep that promise. Be with each one of these men here in the room as well as those online. Give them added strength for the day. And Lord, help them to be those strong men of faith that represent you well. We pray for each one. Commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.